Thank you, Cliff. If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Uh, we last week looked in Psalm 19, trying to think about uh, why we memorize Scripture, the benefits of memorizing Scripture. Uh, this week, we're looking at the verses we will actually be memorizing throughout 2023. There was a time uh, when I was conceiving this idea where I thought, let's just spend a whole year in Romans 8, where I was going to preach every week on the verse we were about to memorize. There is that much in it. Uh, I decided against that, but I still think we need to explain it in some sense uh, before we memorize it so that we know the flow of the passage and where it's going. So we'll be in Romans chapter 8, the entire chapter, this morning. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law, the spirit of life, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. When you were a kid, did you ever have one of those toys that started out as a super small little rubber-like thing? Maybe even it was in a little capsule or a pill. But then when you put it in water, it would blow up and become this massive lizard or dinosaur or giraffe or whatever animal it was. It was huge. I used to love those things. It felt like magic to me. And the the longer you left it in water, the the bigger it would get. And I'm sure at some point, eventually, it would stop growing. It can't just become infinitely large. But I never got to that point with any of mine. My mom always made me stop, pull it out of the water, and then throw it away. That was the the process. So you have to watch it for a few hours. It would get to a certain size. And mom said, that's enough. It's gone. I never got to see how big it could get. But as far as I knew, this little rubber dinosaur would become infinitely large the longer I left it in the water. And I think all of the Bible has this same characteristic to some degree. It is deeper and more meaningful than it seems. One verse, one paragraph, one chapter, one book, when examined, can grow infinitely large. The more we delve into it, the more there is to see within it. It just keeps growing. It gets bigger and bigger and deeper and deeper, and it never stops. All of Scripture is like this, but I think that Romans 8 is one of the thicker, more dense passages in all of Scripture. That's part of why we're taking this entire year to memorize it as a church. But I emphasize that on the front end because though I will hope to preach roughly my typical length, maybe just a little bit longer if you'll allow me, I will not be able to answer all your questions about Romans 8. I won't be able to give this passage the justice that it deserves, though I will try to explain pretty much every verse. There will be way more meat left on the bone than I am able to clean off for you. But I think if we're going to spend so much time in this passage together this year, trying to memorize it, committing it to our memory, then we need to try to see it as a whole, to understand its flow and argument. And what it means for us. So today, we will see five life-changing paradigm shifts from Romans 8. Five life-changing paradigm shifts from this chapter of Scripture. And the first life-changing paradigm shift we'll see from Romans 8 today is that we now have life, not death. 
The, the chapter begins by continuing the argument from chapter 7 in Romans, in Romans 7, that though Paul is still a sinner and still struggles to do what he knows he should, he's been set free from his old way, set free from his old body of sin and death through Christ. So now chapter 8 builds on that basic truth that, Christ, or that Paul has been set free in Christ from his old way of sin to further expand our understanding of what has happened to those who are in Christ. What's happened to us who have repented and believed in Christ's finished work for our salvation. And where Paul begins, the very first benefit he explains and expounds upon in this chapter, the first thing he wants you to know and understand as he tries to tell you exactly what the benefits are of your salvation, exactly what the plan of God is for you in Christ, the first thing he says is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the verse we were supposed to memorize last week. And I don't know about you, but for me, it was a very sweet way to begin 2023. With a constant reminder that there is no condemnation for me. As I was going through the week, reading that verse over and over and over again, I found it like a sweet balm to my soul. There is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is none this year, and there was none last year. There is none today, there will be none tomorrow. No former sin still clings to you. No future sins will put you in jeopardy. There is no condemnation. There is not and there will be none. Not even a little bit. Now and forever, for those who are in Christ, this is the thought that allows us to sleep soundly. To struggle against our sin in full confidence, without any mixture of fear. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this freedom from condemnation has come because Christ has freed us from the law. Verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So where before we were slaves to sin, unable to free ourselves, Christ has now freed us from sin and its effect of death. By giving us his spirit of life. And the law simply couldn't do that for us. Verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Christ fulfilled the law in his flesh. So that we who in our flesh could not fulfill the law, who could not live the perfect lives the law required of us, could still receive his fulfillment in the place of our failure. And because we receive his fulfillment, because we are in him and are no longer people who live according to the flesh, but are now people who live according to the spirit, it's as if we fulfilled the law. It's actually better than if we had fulfilled the law. Because having fulfilled it up to this point could still mean that I could somehow further not fulfill it in the future. But Christ having fulfilled it and finished that work means that it is always fulfilled for those who are in Christ and therefore receive his fulfillment. That's why there's no condemnation. The law can't condemn us because as far as the law is concerned, we haven't broken it. 
when the law looks at us, when God in his justice looks at us, there's no broken law to see. There is only Christ, only his perfection. We are fundamentally different than we were before. We are fundamentally different from those who are not in Christ. We were condemned. Now we are not. There's no condemnation for us. We were slaves to sin. Now we're not. We were under the law and now we're not. We were walking according to the flesh. Now we walk according to the spirit. Everything has changed for us. And that includes our very mindset. Picking up in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We now have the opportunity, through Christ and His gospel, to live according to, And to set our minds on the things of the spirit rather than the things of the flesh. Rather than dwelling in our own sin and failure in the flesh, we set our minds on the spirit and receive life and peace. We actually now have the opportunity to please the God of the universe. And we are the only ones who can. Those in the flesh can't do it. Those under the law can't do it. Not only can they not please him, but they're actually hostile to him. We are fundamentally different from those who are in the flesh. Verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your immortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I love that these verses are here because if you're anything like me, when you read verses like what we had just read, things like the mindset on the flesh is death. It's hostile to God. It's unable to please him. And then we read things that all these if statements, right? If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. If Christ is in you. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. If you're anything like me, when I read that, one of my first reactions a lot of times is to tense up. To shrink back in fear. I mean, maybe it's not talking about me. Maybe it's saying things that are true, yes, but true for someone else, true for those people who it's true for, who meet all those requirements, who have all those if statements for them. But maybe it's not true for me. I mean, an if statement bears with it the possibility that it isn't the case. This is only true if that is true. And then I start remembering all the times, all the ways that my mind is not set on the flesh, on the spirit. but It's rather set on the flesh. All the things I do which don't please God. And if I'm not careful, it would be really easy for me to fall back into condemnation when I read some of these statements. And it might be easy for you to do the same thing if that's the way your mind works. But I think that's part of why Paul started the paragraph, making it so clear from verse 1 in chapter 8 that there is no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. 
It's not based on your work. It's not based on your skill. It's not based on your effort or your perfection, but on his. Based on who he is and what he's done for you. So now all of these if statements go from being fearful conditionals, things that I am afraid of because maybe I don't meet the requirements of them. They go from being something that makes me scared into something that becomes a sure and steady promise. They're no longer things that scare us into trying to meet the first part of the statement. They're now promises based on the assumption that for us, everything is different. There is nothing that is the same that it was before Christ. Simply because we are in Christ and therefore have his spirit. We're no longer living according to the flesh. Though our bodies are dead because of sin. Though we continue to sin daily. Our spirits are life. Because we have his spirit. And because that same spirit raised Jesus from the dead. We know. That because he has been raised from the dead, that he will also give life to our mortal bodies through that same spirit that dwells in us. There is no condemnation for us. And that's absolutely life changing. That's a massive paradigm shift that we see in Romans 8. But the second life changing paradigm shift from Romans 8 that we'll see today is another fundamental difference. We are sons, not slaves. Look at verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. I think the Bible's flow here is actually seeing the fear that is possibly creeping up in the backs of the minds of people who are like me. And it's continuing to push that fear back. And it does so in this life-changing shift, emphasizing that we have the ability to live by the Spirit. And the security to live as sons and heirs of God. Paul is calling us to live according to the truths that we've already read. The truths we've already heard. If we're not condemned, don't live like you are. If you're not under the law, don't live like you are. If you're not in the flesh, don't live like you are. Put to death the deeds of the body. Put to death that which is earthly in you. Kill your sin. By the Spirit, meaning with the Spirit's help, with His urging, through His power and work within you, put to death the sinful deeds of your dead body so that you can lay hold of the life that's right in front of you. Of the life that's been won for you and given to you. John Owen, the, the Puritan, said this idea from Romans eight thirteen this way. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Between you and sin, there is a war that must be waged. It is a cage match. And only one of you is going to come out alive. Either must die at the hand of the other, for neither can live while the other survives. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's the only way. And you have the power, the chance to do it through the Spirit because He's dwelling within you. You have this chance, this ability, a true life, because you are not a slave to sin, but rather you are a son, a daughter of God. Verse 15. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. It is not necessary For you to live in fear of condemnation from your own sin and death. Because yes, you have the ability to put to death the deeds of your flesh. But also, you are a child of God. You've been adopted into his family. And no one gets thrown out of his family. You don't have to live in fear as an orphan out in the cold. You can live boldly as an adopted child, crying out to the father who loved you and adopted you. You're not only a child, but an heir. His kingdom is yours. His life is yours. His wealth is yours. Just as Christ is receiving what he is due, so we as fellow heirs with Christ, through him and in him, will receive all that he is due as well. If you're in Christ, you are not a slave. You're a son, an heir, a fellow heir with Christ. But with your inheritance comes suffering. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. But the suffering isn't the end of your story because of the third life-changing paradigm shift from Romans 8. We await glory, not suffering. Whatever suffering we receive, and if you're living like Christ, suffering and persecution are coming your way. It is impossible for you to actually live the Christian life without suffering and persecution. If you're living a life right now with zero suffering, zero persecution, you are not living like a Christian lives. It is impossible to do that. With our life, with our new life, with the lack of condemnation we have in Christ comes suffering and persecution. But that suffering is worth it. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Paul here knew great suffering. He wasn't naively saying that whatever you go through, it's worth it. He wasn't Marie Antoinette telling the peasants that because they have no bread, they should be eating cake. He knows He went through worse than any of us will. He knows the fullness of what he's talking about. And yet he still says it is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. The children of God do receive suffering. But that suffering is only a prelude to a future glory. It's only the suffering now for the glory later. This glory is not only for us, but it's for all of creation with us. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, they took all of creation with them into their brokenness due to sin. So now, as God in Christ is redeeming all things to himself, starting with the souls of men and women, all creation is eagerly waiting for the day when the physical is made to reflect the spiritual. For the day when reality on earth reflects what is true in heaven. We and all of creation with us are waiting. We're eagerly longing to be redeemed. To receive the future glory that we've been promised in the place of our present suffering. We're waiting in this hope that it absolutely will happen. Verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We have this promise secured and a hope that is founded. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, we know we will be raised as well. But as we suffer here and now, we do so in patience. Hoping beyond hope for that which we don't now see. For our faith to be made sight. We wait in patience in the midst of our suffering for the revealing of the future glory that we've been promised. But as we wait, we're not alone. We're not left to our own devices out in the cold. We have help. That's the fourth life-changing paradigm shift from Romans 8. We receive the Spirit in our weakness. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. For us now, the Spirit is an intercessory help. We don't know how to live. We don't know how to think. We don't even know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit steps in, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Even when we say the wrong things, when we think the wrong things, even when we don't have words to say because the groaning is too deep, the Spirit takes that silence, gives it to the Father, and helps us in our weakness to say and do what we can't do on our own. We receive the Spirit as the helper in our weakness. And He is working all things for our good according to the will of God. And what is the will of God for you? What is that will that he is working all things together toward? That which is good. Your salvation. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. One of my favorite books by my favorite Puritan is a short little book by Thomas Watson. It's called All Things for Good. And in that book, Watson takes this idea from verse 28. That all things work together for the good of those who love God, who have been called according to his purpose. And he expounds it to show that it really means it when it says it. All things, the best things and the worst things, 
are being worked together for your good by the all-powerful and all-knowing God of the universe who loves you and gave himself for you. And this is most evident when through the Spirit he has made our salvation secure. What greater good is there than for you to be a child of God? To be not only predestined, but called, justified, sanctified, and glorified in Christ. That is the greatest good. There is no other good that compares with that. And there is an unbreakable chain from the will of God to your glory in Christ. Before creation, before you existed, he knew that he would save you. So he called you toward that salvation he had planned for you in a way that only he can. And when you responded to that call as he knew you would, you were justified by the work of Christ. And you will be glorified on the last day with Christ. While I could obviously talk for weeks on these ideas in this text, let me just pause for one moment on one word in verse 30, glorified. Notice that it's in the past tense. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Romans 8 uses the past tense here because though we haven't been glorified yet, the fact that we will be glorified is so secure. It is so unassailably, absolutely, and unquantifiably never not going to happen that when Scripture tells us this, It does so as if it already has happened. It may as well have already happened. Your future glory is so absolutely sure and absolutely going to happen that it might as well already have happened, according to Romans 8. That when Christ justified you on the cross, which would have made sense in Romans 8 for that to be in the past tense because it happened before Paul wrote the letter... He also secured your glory in the future because that is just as sure as what he had already done in the past. Those who are in Christ might as well already be like Christ. Because it is so surely going to happen for us. What more could we want? That's basically the question that Paul asks in the next verses. He gives the final life-changing paradigm shift that we'll see today. That God is for us and not against us. And he does so in such a way that he's emphasizing there's nothing more we could receive than what we already have in Christ. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What more could we want? God is is for us. And if God is for us, who cares who's against us? All the governments of the world haven't stopped his church yet. All the sins of his people haven't thwarted his gospel yet. All the ways that we try to mess up his message haven't stopped it yet. Doesn't matter who has come against us, no government, no ruler, no friend, no enemy, no sin, no temptation. If God is for us, who could possibly be against us? God is for us, so who cares who's against us? 
Whoever it is, they are absolutely outmatched. I'm reminded in the return of the king, just before the, the big battle outside Gondor, the Pelennor Fields, Pippin, the Hobbit, and Gandalf are talking about their prospects, and it looks pretty grim. Things aren't looking up. They don't know if any help is coming from Rohan, the other kingdom. They don't have any trust in Denethor, the makeshift steward king, their ruler, to lead them in battle. It really seems like they are incredibly outmatched. And then Pippin turns to Gandalf and says, yeah, but we have the white wizard. That's got to count for something. We have the God of the universe for us. That counts for everything. If God is for us, who could possibly be against us? What difference does it make? It's got to count for everything. What more could we want? Christ has been given up for us. The Son of God took on flesh to save us. He died for us. He was raised for us. If God will die for you, if he'll give his son for you, what will he not give to you? If you've received Christ, how will you not receive all things? Since you've already received the greatest of all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Because he has already given us the greatest in Christ. What more could you want? The God whose justice you needed to be saved from is the very God who saved you. Who is to condemn? He's the one who wanted to save you, who elected to save you, who chose to save you, who worked to save you, who came to save you. Who is possibly going to be able to thwart that plan? Who's to condemn? He chose to save you and made it happen. What more could you want? The Christ who died for you is now living for you, is now interceding for you at the right hand of the Father. Where he ascended and where he sits and waits, having finished his work, he sat down at the right hand of the Father to intercede for his people. There's no greater help. There's no greater advocate we could ask for. We have no half-hearted intercessor. We have the one who saved us and advocates for us. What more could we want? God is for us, not against us. We have the inseparable love of God. What more could we want? Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. No matter how it feels or how it seems, we are not condemned. We are conquerors, more than conquerors even. Through him who loved us, it doesn't matter what tribulation, 
What distress, what persecution, what famine, what nakedness, what danger or sword might come against us because we are more than conquerors in these things. And that is never going away. The answer to Paul's question in verse 35, when he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is no one, nothing shall ever separate us from the love of Christ. It transcends life and death, having brought us from death to life through his cross, where he crossed from death to life. No angel or ruler can overrule his love. No matter what is happening or what will happen, his love remains. No matter where we go, no matter what we face, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is now and always will be for us, not against us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All these things are absolutely unassailably true for you. They will never not be true for you if you are in Christ. But for those who are not in Christ, they have no confidence of any of these things. They have the opposite of all these things. They have death rather than life. They have weakness rather than despair. They have God against them rather than for them. But it doesn't have to be that way. For all who repent and believe, for all who are in Christ, for all who turn from their sin, trust in his finished work of salvation, for all who put their faith, hope, and trust in who he is and what he's done for them and on their behalf. For all who do that, who respond to his message that way, who receive his faith that way, all of these things are true. And they will always be true. So as we go through this year, committing these verses to memory, as we dwell on these ideas and consider these truths week in and week out, it's my prayer that we'll be changed by these words. I hope that the word of God will dwell in us richly and conform us to his image as his word works in and through us. I pray that we will be Romans 8 Christians, not just people who have memorized Romans 8. I hope we'll go about all our days knowing and trusting that we have life, not death. That we're sons, not slaves. We await glory, not suffering. We receive the spirit, not weakness. And God is for us, not against us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for these life-changing paradigm shifts from Romans 8. Thank you not only for accomplishing these things, but telling us that you have. Showing us that you have. Giving us the short hope and steady promise that this is a finished work on our behalf. Help us to know this. To trust this. To live like it's true. And God, help us to know that it's true for those who are in Christ. Therefore, we need to send this message to those who are not yet in Christ. That it can be true for them. That there is no one we come in contact with who does not have this chance. Who does not have this possibility. 
who cannot respond to this message. Let us live like these things are true as we memorize them this year. Give us minds that are strong to be able to do it. Wills that are strong to have the conviction to continue. And the hope and promise. These aren't just words on a page, but they're promises that are true for us. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name.